According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the scriptures. We are in the book of Proverbs this morning, Proverbs chapter 11. We introduced the uh, chapter last week and uh, got our first look at verse 1 there. We'll get right back to it again here this morning. Before we do, though, let's take a moment for silent prayer. Remember, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. So take this time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed to humble your heart under the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and the blessing that we have to assemble together. I thank you for the book of Proverbs. I thank you for the wisdom that you supply through this book. I pray, Father, that we would be humble before the authority of your word, that with humility we would receive the word implanted that is able to save our souls. So, Father, open the eyes of our understanding. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, uh, chapter 11 continues the, th- the same themes and poetic structures from chapter 10. And so everything that we've been dealing with, recognizing that we've got these loosely connected or sometimes un- disconnected verses from one verse to the next, uh, but the same themes and poetic structures continue in chapter 11. In fact, they're going to keep continuing all the way through chapter 18 and then beyond all the way to chapter 24. Uh, you'll notice in the pericope headings here, it says contrast of the upright and the wicked, right? That's at the, the top of chapter 11. If you're reading a New American Standard Bible, you've got the pericope heading there. Uh, and what does it say at chapter 12? Same thing. Contrast the upright and the wicked. Chapter 13, same thing. 14, 15, 16. In fact, they're all identical all the way through chapter 18. Contrast the upright and the wicked. Slightly different from chapter 10, where it was contrast of the righteous and the wicked. All right, so what's the difference between the righteous and the upright? Well, not much, although uh, it's, I think it's useful to consider that it is only being given God's righteousness then that we have any standing in which to be upright in our community. All right, and so when we talk about our personal wisdom and our public wisdom, it is our positional, uh, the, the truth of who we are in Christ that makes us to be righteous in the first place or upright in the first place. Okay? And that's huge because the world will try to redefine things. They'll redefine what it means to be upright. And they'll point to a, a person that has a human morality and say, look at this human morality. They're really an upright person. And, and I would dispute that. I think the scriptures would dispute that. And they may have a human goodness. They may have a, a morality, but it's not grounded in scripture and it's not grounded in our salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so if you've got a morally depraved human being, you've got a situation that's described there in in Romans chapter 2, and they're no better than the immorally depraved person in Romans chapter 1. So the the upright, understand that, we are upright because we're saved, not because of what we're doing. This is not a, a license for legalism. Proverbs doesn't teach us how to be good people so we can be better than the bad people. All right? We are righteous and in, as an extension of that, an expression of that, a response to that, we can then live uprightly in the community. And uh, I, I hope we have the order on that correctly. The personally righteous individual, personally living in God's wisdom, will manifest a public integrity. And so if you want to know what, what is that bridge between the personal and the public, That bridge is there. That bridge is letting the Word of God shape your thinking. That bridge is being renewed in the spirit of your mind. That you are living out in public life uh, the transformation that's happening internally. So the personally righteous individual, personally living in God's wisdom. And this is the bridge we cross when we go from chapter 10 to chapter 11. I I really think that most of the the, um, applications we're going to see in this chapter are what happens when personal wisdom becomes public wisdom? When a, when a shopkeeper has just scales, for example, why does he have just scales? Because he's living out his personal wisdom. In his personal wisdom, he's operating uh, on, on a basis of righteousness and justice that's the standard of the Word of God. And so because he's operating on that standard, he, that, a reflection of that is how he conducts himself in the workplace 
how he conducts his business, the, the kind of store that he runs, the kind of commerce he engages in. And, and it's reflected in all of his business dealings, see. And we see this in verse 1. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. And so here's a believer now who, who has personal wisdom. He's living in his personal life according to the standards of God's righteousness and his justice. And he, and he wants to reflect that in his business dealings. So he doesn't cheat. He doesn't have two sets of scales. He doesn't have the, the, uh, the gimmick that allows him to steal from his customers or steal from, from anyone when it comes right down to that. And this is what we talk about. It's the core principle behind public wisdom. We want our, our culture to be shaped by this. We want to have impact in our culture. And it happens bottom up. It happens intrinsically. It happens as individuals are transformed. See, it's not imposed from from above. And uh, hopefully that will be clear uh, as we see each of these items then in, in not only this chapter, but in all these chapters. All right. So public wisdom appears or it doesn't appear. Public wisdom appears in commercial transactions. And right off the bat, this is what verse one is dealing with the scales. This is a public transaction. And uh, you can have a false balance or you can have a just balance or a just weight, all right? And in the scales, if you've got anything doctored, if you have a, a weight that's labeled one thing but really it's, it's shaved or it's not pure, whatever it is, maybe you've, you've adulterated the, the material that it's made out of and so it's, it's slightly less, you know, you don't have a just weight. And uh, so you put it on this side of the scale and then you, may, you put the grain on the other side of the scale or, or whatever it is you're selling. And uh, if you're, you're selling an ephah, you're selling a gera, you're selling whatever the measure is that you're selling, that's what the, the person thinks he's going to get. And uh, you're weighing it out for him, but you're cheating because of, uh, of the false scales, see, because of the false weights. And you can do it either way. You can either have a weight that's too heavy or a weight that's too light. Your customer may, may try to do the same thing if he's shady as well. He's got some, uh, some silver that he's providing in exchange, or maybe he's providing an alternative grain in exchange, all right? Different barter systems that were employed at different times. Um, you got to have the just balances. You need the, the shekel to be a shekel. You need the, the gera to be a gera, and uh, the principles there. And so um, we see it, and I don't mind, we can look at... Uh, Let's grab De- Deuteronomy 25 here. We don't have to read the Leviticus verses. I think they're fairly similar. Deuteronomy 25, verses 13 through 16. If you were here last week, then we've read this already, and this will be a review for you, but that doesn't hurt. You shall not have in your bag differing weights, a large and a small, okay, or a heavy or a light You shall not have in your house differing measures, a large and a small. And so you can run the scam either way, in your bag or in your house, okay? Are you the customer? You're the guy walking into the place? You've got the the gimmicks in your bag. Or you're the proprietor of the establishment, okay, in your house. Either way, the buyer or the seller can cheat, or they both can try to cheat, okay? And that's why you want to have equal weights. And, And... Really, one of the prime focuses of government is to assure this. That government ought to be there to enforce standards of law, to enforce land boundaries, to, to enforce equal weights and, and all the rest. Um, verse 15, you shall have a full and just weight. You shall have a full and just measure that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. There are divine consequences to cheating. And, and notice, it's not just a full weight, it is a full and a just weight. If it's not full, it's unjust. It violates the standards of a just and righteous God. God is offended in, uh, in cheating business practices. Verse 16, for everyone who does these things, everyone who acts unjustly is an abomination to the Lord your God. And it's, uh, this, is, this is the key, all right? That in everything we do, in our business practices, we stand before God, just or unjust. And we don't want to be the abomination as uh, the Scripture describes it there. 
So this led us to a vocabulary study on abominations, the totneva in the Hebrew, 112 Old Testament uses. And while tempting to, to read all 112 of them, uh, it's not necessary to read all 112 of them, particularly when we can identify over and over again that everything described as an abomination is a revulsion is something that that repulses you that the the uh, it's a stimulus to that engineers a pushing away response right when we talk about responses fight or flight okay we talk about adrenaline responses and different things well the the response to an abomination is push it away right the response to uh, to a delight is hug it closer and that's when we get to uh, uh, the second part here of, of Proverbs 11.1. 1, the false balance is an abomination, so we push it away. The just weight is his delight. And in a delight, we want to hug it. Okay, In a delight, we're drawing it closer. And that's the imagery in the Hebrew here between the contrast between the abomination and the delight. It, what is it stimulating me to do? It is offending my sensitivities that I have senses that are trained, right? We all have senses. Eyes, ears, nose, mouth, taste, you know, touch, everything. We have senses, and our senses react to the different stimulus, the different stimuli, right? Uh, A good smell or a bad smell, a good taste or a bad taste, uh, something that feels great, something that feels horrible. And we understand that there's a wide distinction there. And that's what we're dealing with, with abominations and delights. So um, obviously with abomination, we start with a whole lot of sexual items in Leviticus 18, but it's not limited to those sexual items. That's where, that's where it's grounded. That's where uh, we have really a concentration of the terms, and it starts there. And I think that we, we take that as a primary understanding. But with that as a primary understanding, we then have other idioms that come from that. And there are other abominations that are not sexual in nature, but that uses the same term so that we, we, we uh, are impressed by the, the gravity of it, that we are, can you check that out, Doug? I don't know what that is. Um, we are impressed with the gravity of it because the, the language that's used is serious related to these things, all right? And so, um, and by the way, we do the same thing in modern English. We do the same thing today with modern idioms. We, we tend to use some of the, um, the more graphic sexual type expressions. We, we talk about, why do we talk about politicians and they're, we say, well, they're just prostituting themselves, right? Or they're whoring themselves or, or, or other things. We, we use the same idiom. And, and it's not literal. Those politicians aren't literally, you know, walking the streets and, and sexually selling themselves. But they might as well be because of what they're doing with the, the lobbyist money and the special interests and the whatever. So we, we, we use the same idiom, okay? Scripture uses the same idiom related to this. All right. Now, we, we dealt with all of these aspects, and I want to move on this morning to talk about the delight. Our message today should be delightful, because uh, we're centering on delight. And the rat zone, or rot zone, is the term for favor, all right? And I think the nature of rot zone is, is uh, a blessing to take a look at, and also one to, to maybe distinguish between other expressions, as, as it applies to grace, for example. This is not our word for grace, but grace and favor are, are used so interrelatedly that I think sometimes we, we blur them in our thinking, and they're not pure synonyms, all right? Uh, being gracious is not being nice, uh, although it may include a, a sense of favor and appreciation and delight, a pleasure that comes in something. And so the 56 uses of Ratzon, as you want to take a look at them, subpoint B is in the outline. The vocabulary for delight is Ratzon, R-A-T-S-O-W-N. And the T-S should be combined, so R-A-T-S-O-W-N, Ratzon. And the A is a longer A. The comments is a longer vowel sound there. So it's not rat zone, although I'm tempted. Uh, it's rot zone, rot zone, okay? The term for favor. And uh, we can look at these, uh, Leviticus 1.3. And, and we'll see the nature of this. And we'll also spot uh, on many of these examples parallel terms um, such as grace and other expressions, all right? 
and we'll see them for what they are. So Leviticus 1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, When any man of you brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring your offering of animals from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted. That's our term, ratzon, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And so the idea of favor, the idea of something that's favorable, if it finds favor in your sight, that means it's accepted. It's acceptable that you approve, all right? And uh, so we can think of delight and favor and acceptable in, uh, in, in these interchangeable or synonymous type expressions. And, and, and really, it's kind of a blend of all three. You know, sometimes when you're translating from one language to another language, it's hard to find a one-to-one correspondence with some, some particular terms. And, and Ratzon, I think, is, is of that nature, that it kind of blends these aspects of favor and delight and acceptability, all rolled into a, into a Ratzon, all right? And this becomes important because when we are offering sacrifices, God's the one who's accepting them or not, Right? God's the one that's accepting them or rejecting them. And it may be, if we try to approach like Nadab and Abihu, we're bringing strange fire, it will not be accepted. Or we're like Cain and Abel, right? Cain brings vegetables. What was wrong with those? Abel brought the, the, the blood offering of the, of the sacrificial lamb. And, uh, and, and we understand that God is entitled to lay before us His expectations of worship, what it is that He expects of us. Okay, God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. But then, what does it say? For such, uh, worship, uh, for such is what God seeks to be His worshippers. Right? I'm going to misquote that. But John chapter four, when uh, Jesus is speaking to that woman, I want to get lost on this, but I don't want to misquote it either. God is spirit. He must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. See, this is. Um, the father, uh, the verse before that, an hour is coming and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. All right? This is the Father's good pleasure, it's his business. And he has every right to lay out those expectations. And so that's what we start with here in Leviticus 1 3. All right, Leviticus 19 5. Another Rotzone illustration. Leviticus 19 5. Now when you, when you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It's not only the sacrifice that has to be accepted, you have to be accepted. You're the one bringing the sacrifice. And uh, particularly as a peace offering, we're talking about reconciliation and, and peace between you and a holy God. Chapter 22, and a number of verses there, 19, 20, 21, and 29. We've got a string of verses there. In Leviticus 22. All right. And um, well, uh, this is Pentecost here. If you back up to verse 15, you see a context. and I don't want to read the whole chapter there, but uh, verse 15, you shall count for yourselves from the day after the Sabbath, from the day when you brought in the sheaf of the wave offering, there shall be seven complete Sabbaths. And so seven complete Sabbaths, that gives you 49 days, and then one day beyond that is day 50. So you shall count 50 days to the day after the seventh Sabbath, and then you shall present a new grain offering to the Lord. And uh, the Father lays this out here in this, uh, in this application. And now along with this, as we go through, getting down to verse 19, you shall also offer one male goat for a sin offering and two male lambs, one year old, for a sacrifice of peace offerings. Okay, and this is where it becomes acceptable. Am I reading the wrong chapter? Thank you. Oh, I am. Okay. Thank you then. Chapter 22. I wonder how long I would have gone with that, looking for the rot zone. <laughs> All right, chapter 22, verse 19. Uh, for you to be accepted. There we go. All right. 
The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and to his sons, and to all the sons of Israel, and say to them, Any man of the house of Israel, or of the aliens in Israel, who presents his offering, whether it is of their votive, or any of their freewill offerings, which they present to the Lord, or uh, for a burnt offering, for you to be accepted. All right? For you to be accepted. That's Ratzon. All right? So not everything is Ratzon. I mean, just right there. Not everything is cool. Not everything goes. And, and the, the, the lie of pluralism that we live with in our culture day in and day out is, well, you know, it's all good. It's all okay. Whatever. You know, faith is faith as long as you're devout. Or, uh, you know, good people go to heaven. Well, no, they don't. Good people go to hell every day because it's human good. Human goodness is no good. Okay? It's got to be God's goodness, God's righteousness imputed to our account. So the idea of acceptability has as its corollary abomination, the unacceptability, that which he's pushing away, as opposed to that which he's embracing. So verse 19, for you to be accepted, it must be a male without defect from the cattle, the sheep, or the goats. See, And, and we get this. Why does it have to be without defect? Because it's a picture of Christ. It's shadow Christology. It's looking forward to Jesus Christ without sin. And if, if you're going to bring a, a goat that's got a, a broken leg or some kind of animal with a blemish, you're painting an ugly picture of the, of the perfect, sinless, glorious God-man who has come to redeem us from our sins. We can't, and God's not going to tolerate that. You offer something like that and you're insulting God who's delivering up His beloved Son. All right. Whatever has a defect you shall not offer for it will not be accepted for you. That's verse 20. Verse 21, when a man offers a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord to fulfill a special vow or for a freewill offering of the herd or of the flock, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. And then finally, verse 29, uh, when you sacrifice a sacrifice of thanksgiving to the Lord, you shall sacrifice it so that you may be Ratzon, you may be accepted. Finally, then I can cross into chapter 23, so long as I look at verse 11. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord. Here's a fun one, the wave offering, right? Waving the sheaf. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it. All right, so there it is. So all of these in Leviticus, in Leviticus speaking to offerings speaking to uh a uh, the levitical priesthood and, and and what they're doing and in representing the nation representing the people serving as uh, as as uh mediators serving as those uh, that priesthood on behalf of of god to the people and on behalf of the people to god and so forth all right but the principles here of what's accepted and what's not accepted clearly we need to, to glom onto this we need to identify because we are believer priests too we're in the New Testament. We're in the church age. We're believer priests in Christ, right? We operate in our Melchizedek priesthood and we want to know how do we offer these sacrifices? We want to offer, we want to be own. We don't want to be We don't want to be abomination in the things that we do because our accountability is much more severe, far more severe than the Old Testament priesthood's accountability. And so I think as we cross into the Psalms, we start to see how a ritual can become reality how on a spiritual basis our attitude towards the Word of God, our attitude towards God Himself, uh, will shape the acceptability of our service. Psalm 19.14. Psalm 19.14, and we're familiar with this. I think a lot of these are verses we already know, we just don't know the vocabulary behind them, right? Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be wrought own in your sight acceptable in your sight O lord my rock and my redeemer see how well how serious is this you know if you're going into the holy place or you're going into the holy of holies you want your sacrifice there to be wrought zone but think about it it's not just in a formal liturgical outward uh you know religious practice it's not just in a in a um in a, in a cultic type setting, that Ratzon is an issue. It's daily life that Ratzon is an issue. The meditations of my heart, the words of my mouth, you mean how I think, the words I say, my conversation, 
that also falls into this discussion of what's rot sown and what's not rot sown? Absolutely it does. Absolutely it does. And if you think there's some kind of a schizophrenic divide between your church life and your personal life, you've missed the whole point. Okay, Personal wisdom becomes public wisdom. Our spiritual walk before the Lord is not just on Sundays here in church, but it's seven days a week, 24 hours a day. It's before God and man and angels and everybody in how we're living out our faith. Psalm 40. Another verse we know very well. We've known it for years. Maybe we didn't know it was Rot's own. In fact, there is such a a context here in Psalm 40. How many times does this passage get quoted in, in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews? Over and over again. Psalm 40 and verse 6 says, Sacrifice a meal offering you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me, or my ears you have opened, depending on which text you're reading. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I, and here's Ratzon, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. And here's Jesus Christ, prophetically, now David's writing this, but prophetically looking forward to Jesus Christ coming in his first advent. The beloved son, the the servant in whom he delights. And Jesus Christ is is really the the center, you know, the the, the pinnacle of Ratzon in the the universe. There's no greater Ratzon illustration than Jesus Christ, who is a delight to his father. Uh, the reason why God was satisfied with the work of the cross is because of this Ratzon relationship between the Father and the Son. We want to be clear on these things. All right. Psalm uh, 69. In verse 13. Again, Psalm 69. Another Davidic psalm. Uh, much of this looks forward to the cross. You talk about the uh, the adversaries and those that are um, plotting against him here. Let's see, man, I love the whole psalm. Where to start? The um, we know it's Davidic, uh, um, and, and clearly in the Davidic portions, he can talk about his falling, his wrongs, and and these things. Uh, when we go forward to the messianic portion, of course, there's no sin in uh, in Jesus' case. Uh, verse uh, 6, May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. And, and this is what we're going to talk about with shame and dishonor. It's coming up in uh, the next verse, uh, in verse 2 of Proverbs 11. Uh, but here's shame and dishonor right here. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. You know, if you're the pastor, or you're the Bible teacher, you're the spiritual leader, or you're the king, or you're the husband, or you're the father, and you, and you have uh, the people that are um, looking to you, that are under your authority, and you're teaching them, and you're setting that example, and they're not, you're not the object of their faith, but they're still looking at you and through you, and you should be pointing them to Christ, and then you bring dishonor on the name of Christ, that's 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 a horrible place to be, and David says, "Don't ever let me be there." Okay, and he'd been there, been there on a number of occasions with Bathsheba. He was there. Okay, because for your sake I have borne reproach. Dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. This is the passage here, verse uh, 9, Psalm 69, 9. This is the verse here that was brought to the disciples' remembrance when Jesus was driving out the money changers in the temple. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. And sometimes our family is just going to think we're some kind of Bible-thumping freaks. What kind of zealot are you? What kind of, come on, get over it already, jeepers. And, and they won't understand the depths of struggle that we're dealing with. Those who sit in the gate talk about me, and I am a song, the song of the drunkards. Can you imagine? 
David was the pinnacle of this, I think, until Jeremiah. And then Jeremiah was the pinnacle of this, I think, until, until Jesus. But as for me, but as for me, you know, isn't that great? One of the nicest buts anywhere in the Bible. Because after all of those lamentations and all of those complainings and all the horrible things that are going on, David says, you know, I don't care about any of that. He says, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at a ratzon time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. With your saving truth, okay? Not the salvation of getting, of you know, receiving eternal life and going to heaven when you die, but the salvation of being delivered from enemies, from from adversaries, from sin struggles, from uh, the in in terms of the second phase of salvation here. But uh, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, at a rotzone time. Now. What what a thrill for us to be studying this at the same time we're studying Kairos in in our Galatian study, right? The opportune time. That the opportune time, what makes it opportune to God? What makes it acceptable to God? And if you've been with us in in the Galatian series, you understand that opportune is not convenient. It's not for our convenience. It's for His opportune. It's for His acceptability. I think um, I'd be curious to see in fact, I'm going to puzzle that out this afternoon if, if uh, the Septuagint ever uses kairos to, to render the rot zone related to acceptability and opportune. I'd, I'd be curious on that. All right. So that's Psalm 69 13. Answer me with your saving truth in the greatness of your chesed, in the greatness of your loving kindness. Answer me with your saving truth. So because my prayer comes to him as an acceptable sacrifice, his answer can come to me in his good pleasure when he chooses to let his answer come back my direction i'm not going to stop praising him in my direction but he can start to uh he can answer whenever he so chooses all right psalm 145 verse 16 and verse 19 more rotzone Here's a, a desire, all right, an acceptability. Psalm 145, verse 16, and Psalm 145, verse 19. Um, backing up in a prayer context here, I guess verse 14, or I could back all the way up to verse 8, where the Lord is gracious and merciful. But um, verse 14, the Lord sustains all who fall and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due time. There too, I bet you there's got to be Kairos there in the Septuagint of that. Verse 16, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. And here's a human use of Ratzon. So far, I think much of what we've been looking at has been God. Has been God's been the subject of, of the Ratzon. And everything is centered on what is His acceptability, what is His um, delight, what is approved in His eyes. Um, but here we have a human uh, desire. All right? And God is making provision for that. And really, what's the difference between what God desires and what we desire? Well... If we're walking in wisdom, there won't be a difference. If we're walking in in wisdom, then we will have His desires. Our rot zone will be His rot zone. That our desire, our delight, we will delight in the Lord. Because if we end up with a rot zone that He doesn't rot zone, that's a problem. That's a big problem. See? And so uh, you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all His ways and kind in all His deeds. The Lord is near to all who call upon Him, to all who call upon Him in truth. He will fulfill the rotzon, the desire of those who fear Him. He will also hear their cry and will save them. The Lord keeps all who love Him, but the wicked He will destroy my mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and all flesh will bless His holy name forever and ever. All right. Beautiful psalm on that. Uh, we've seen Ratzon once previously in the book of Proverbs, by the way. Um, I didn't stress it at the time, but in Proverbs 8 and verse 35, He who finds me finds life. 
and obtains favor from the Lord. Proverbs 8.35 He who finds me finds life and obtains ratzon, favor from the Lord. But he who sins against me injures himself and all those who hate me love death. This is a marvelous Old Testament gospel message, by the way. If you want to preach, uh, preach the gospel, it's all about what think ye of Christ. Because the me here in Proverbs 8 is Christ. And we studied that out. So he who finds me finds life. If you don't come to Christ, you don't have eternal life. You might have bio- biological life. That's a given if you're physically alive. But without Christ, you don't have eternal life. And you certainly don't have rot's own. There's no unbeliever that's rot's own before the Lord. But every believer is rot's own before the Lord. All right? Anyway, great Old Testament passage. We taught that back in chapter 8. We're going to have it 13 times in this uh, section, in Proverbs 10 through 19, in this portion of, of personal wisdom and public wisdom. Uh, it's going to come back again and again and again, so don't be surprised if uh, every time we hit it again, I'll say, that's our friend Ratzon. That's the acceptability. That's, that's what we're talking about with the delight. Also, by the way, one use in Isaiah that you might recall from our Isaiah series what we have to look forward, what Israel has to look forward to. Isaiah 61, 2. It's a great prophecy here. Jesus quotes it. Oh, I lost Isaiah. There it is. Isaiah 61, 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the Ratzon year of the Lord. And that's only a third of the way through verse 2, but that's where Jesus stopped his reading. Rolled up the scroll, handed it to the attendant, took a seat. Amazing. Read this sometime in Luke chapter 4. and He says, today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Today is the uh, Ratzon year of the Lord. He couldn't finish reading the verse because the rest of verse 2 and verse 3, this it takes you to second advent. It takes you to, uh, he couldn't even read the day of vengeance of our God because first advent wasn't about vengeance. That's second advent. That's when he comes again. Anyway, then the, the glory of Zion and all the things there, that's all millennial when you get to the millennium in verse 3. So, uh, this is Ratzon, and hopefully we have a better appreciation for Ratzon now. So uh, kind of the opposite of an abomination, a delight is a favorable, acceptable thing which impels someone to embrace it close or to embrace it closely. Use it either ad- adjective or adverbial there. Uh, you want to embrace it close, right? I mean, it, it, aren't hugs by nature close? Those are close things. An embrace is a close thing. Whereas, I mean, it's kind of hard to, to, to hug somebody uh, that's 100 feet away from you. But that's the, that's the nature of a delight, is uh, you're delighted in, in, in a person or a thing, or you want more of it and you want it closer. You know, and you, you see this thing and you want it close. That's a delight. It's a favorable, acceptable thing, which impels someone to embrace it close. All right. So that's kind of the impact here. Just scales, unjust scales. An abomination or a delight. Verse 2, when pride comes, then comes dishonor, but with the humble is wisdom. Now we start to see the attitudes behind the false scales. The underlying attitudes in just and unjust commercial transactions are the attitudes of pride versus humility. I don't think it's an accident that verse 2 is, is tucked right there in between verse 1 and verse 3. And I, and I admit that, that Proverbs is loosely connected. There's not always a link between one verse and the next. But when you see a connection here between verse 1 and verse 2, and then that leads you into verse 3, I think we have at least here, we have a, 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 a bit of a progression that might be uh, more tight than, uh, than other stretches within within Proverbs, all right? I view this as an underlying attitude for verse 1 and and really everything else, verse 3 and following. But the underlying attitudes in just and unjust commercial transactions are the attitudes of pride versus humility, okay? And even if not, 
Uh, even if there's no connection between verse 1 and verse 2, the principles of verse 2 are still true. So we can, we can clearly study them out. Pride versus humility. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. But with the humble is wisdom. All right? And so again, we want to approach this contrast. We want to approach this antithesis to see both sides of this coin. And really, um, it's a no-brainer. Really, it's, it's, it, it preaches itself. A lot of the Proverbs preach themselves. Um, Sometimes I think I'm extraneous to the process. I just feel like, well, there's a verse. Read it, okay? Uh, but there's, there's, there's more to unfold with respect to it, even beyond how, how it preaches itself. Um, but pride versus humility. Here too, here too, okay? This has to be the consequences of the Word of God shaping us, transforming us, molding us into something that we were not before, Okay? We cannot approach this on an earthly basis. This cannot be uh, a moral reform. Uh, a morally reformed reprobate is still a reprobate. Okay, uh, someone that's reading a self-help book, someone that's trying to make themselves better, someone that's uh, forcing their own human humility is going to be just as useless as as the the human boastful one. Right? It has to be the product of God's work in and through us. And uh, the pride versus humility has to be genuine in the in the Word of God. It cannot be artificially um, produced. That will not have any acceptability in God's sight. Yeah, and I, and I suspect, you know, I mean, and in the way it's upside down and backwards, where God's wisdom is foolishness to the world, and the world's wisdom is foolishness towards God, I, I suspect that some some very religious Pharisees, some very religious people would tell you that they're very humble people. But it's just the opposite. They are prideful and boastful and arrogant. They're, they're boastful in their pseudo-humility. Okay? And Jesus nails them. When he's preaching at them, he says, this is the one who's justified, not that one. Because in his prayer life, that one is boasting about how great he is and how he's better than this guy. Because this guy's a sinner. And that guy's praying, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. See? And so a false humility, a humility that's humanly produced, a humility that's, that's sparked by whatever, is really a perverted form of pride. If you think about it, it's a perverse pride expression. They're, they're making gloomy faces in the marketplace and showing off all their fasting or, or in their giving. They're making a big display in their giving or these, these uh, long flowing prayers so people can look at them and go, ooh, what great prayers. All right? And they think they're humble. They're not. And so uh, hopefully we can grab onto that. It's an underlying attitude. And it's either going to be pride or it's going to be humility. I think it's pride. It's pride that cheats in business. Why? Why cheat in business? What, what, what sparks that? Why not have just scales? And after all, it's only right. It's only fair. What do you think you're getting away with? And why do you think you can get away with it? Okay, concept we previously had, you might recall from chapter 3. Pride versus humility was already taught. As a part of parental wisdom in chapter 3, I think if, you ground, if you, we can get our children grounded in these principles while they're young, then uh, the application will come easier for them in their adult capacity. Proverbs 3, verses 34 and 35. Though he scoffs at the scoffers, yet he gives grace to the afflicted. The wise will inherit honor, but fools display dishonor. And so here we have it in this, in this combination of verses, verses 34 and 35. All the elements of, of 11.2 are right here. You've got the pride, you've got the, ar- the arrogance and the humility, you've got the wisdom or lack thereof, you've got the, um, that is the fool, you've got honor versus dishonor. Okay? And all of those components show up here either explicitly or implicitly in Proverbs 11.2. So let's teach our children this at a young age. Let's teach them what this real humility is as the Word of God shapes us. As the, will of, as the Word of God is, it's His wisdom that uh, produces this uh, humility. It'll come back again in chapter 16. This dualism, this uh, antithesis. Pride and 
humility. God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Okay? Proverbs 16, verses 18 and 19. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. We get that. It is better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide the spoil with the proud. You know, it's not only about what we're doing personally, but it also has ramifications in public, in culture. Who are we surrounding ourselves with? The guy cheating in scales is cheating in scales because he's in competition with somebody else who's probably also cheating. <laughs> okay? And so if he, does, if he doesn't, uh, man, you know, what's he going to do? You know, my competitor's hiring uh, illegals at, at sub, sub-legal wages, and, and it's hard for me to compete. I can't, uh, I can't offer bids that compete. I can't. So what am I going to do? Well, fight fire with fire. I've got to get down and dirty. I've got I to hire illegals too. I've got to compete. Okay, that's what the world says. Is that what God says? What, what, what is it that's, that's sparking this? Is it, is it true pride, genuine pride, or is it genuine, I mean, genuine humility? Or is it just satanic pride? I think pride is the underlying attitude here. Finally then, um, 1812. 1812. Proverbs 1812. The cast lot. Nope. Verse 12. Before destruction, the heart of a man is haughty, but humility goes before honor. Okay? And what if it's not on this earth? (laughs) You know? When is the proper time? Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. He will exalt you when? At the proper time, at the kairos. And that might not be in our mortal walk. That may be the judgment seat. That may be for eternity. The exaltation may not come in this life. Are we okay with that? We're supposed to be. I hope we are. But the, uh, the pride, that goes before the fall. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty. It's, it's just guaranteed. That's the nature of what this angelic conflict is all about anyway. Why did God create humanity? Why, when, when you think about exaltation, what, the first thing that comes to my mind anyway is the five I wills of Satan. And every one of those is I will, I will, I will. It's all about self-exaltation. Not content with where God put him and in vowing to, vowing to seize chairs and positions and offices that he's not entitled to. Even in defiance of, of God the Son Himself and God the Father Himself, I will be like the Most High God, He says. So Satan's rebellion at its core is, is arrogance. It, it's, the, it's the antithesis of wisdom. Jesus, on the other hand, what did He do? He humbled Himself. He emptied Himself. He lowered Himself, not just to an angelic lower level, but even lower than the angels. He lowered Himself to the human level. And this is it's just, to me, it's, it's the most beautiful thing because it demonstrates the scope of Scripture and what we're really doing here. We're, we're glorifying Christ with a walk of humility because that's the, the Christ-like walk. We're not emulating the adversary with a self-promotion walk of pride. And every time we do get prideful, the judgment's on the way. God will deal with that. He's able to deal with that. He's very good at dealing with that. All right, so these are the attitudes that I think underlie the, the uh, just and unjust commercial transactions. And even if they don't, the principles are still valid, okay? The attitude of pride produces a consequence of dishonor. And there's a fun rhyme here. I like the rhyme. Uh, Hebrew poetry doesn't often rhyme. In fact, seldom does it even rhyme. But here it rhymes. A lot of times Hebrew poetry is, is parallelism of thought, parallelism of, of context, parallelism of, of, of concept. But here we have the rhyming, Zadon Kalom. And um, yeah, the uh, Zadon, that's the pride that comes. And when pride comes, what else comes? So Ba is the coming, and the Wayabo is the other coming, okay? First coming, second coming. Uh, pride is in the first coming. There's your Zadon. And then the second coming is Kalon. And so if you read the whole expression here, Ba Zadon, Wayabo Kalon. We're not native Hebrew speakers, so it doesn't really hit us the same way. But, but to a little Hebrew kid growing up, learning his, uh, learning his Psalms and Proverbs, the rhyme here is going to sound 
It's going to catch his ear with a sound, and it's going to, going to uh, jump out at him. Pride produces dishonor. When pride comes, then comes dishonor. So if, if, if pride has just walked in the door, understand what's right behind him. Dishonor's on the way. Don't walk with pride. Don't walk with pride. And to me, the illustration of Nebuchadnezzar is the best illustration of this, even uh, better than maybe the, the five I wills. We don't see the, well, I guess we kind of see the destruction in Isaiah 14. You can look at the five I wills and you can see the destruction that's promised, but you can read the pride of, of uh, Nebuchadnezzar and you can see the immediate consequences. So let's look at uh, Daniel chapter 4. It's probably the last thing we'll have time for this morning. But Daniel chapter 4. And you'll see what I'm talking about because this is quite clearly inevitable. This is what God does with pride. And, and maybe not so for the unbeliever. Perhaps the unbeliever does what it does and God in His mercy, they have a longer rope. God in His mercy has no expectations of an unbeliever. Dogs bark, cats meow. Unbelievers do what unbelievers do. All right, But children, sons of God, those that are accountable to live out a righteousness by which they were saved, God does keep a much shorter rope, much shorter accounts. See, and this too, I think, is, is testimony to the, uh, I think, the salvation that Nebuchadnezzar receives at the end of chapter 3. I believe after the fiery furnace, Nebuchadnezzar gets saved. Okay? And so then, as a child of God, Nebuchadnezzar comes under divine discipline in a way that an unbeliever would not in uh, chapter 4. All right. That makes sense? You're all with me still? Daniel chapter 4. Um, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream similar to chapter 2 where he had a dream. And uh, amazingly enough, he, uh, he's very alarmed by this dream. says that in verse 5. My mind kept alarming me. And so he avoids Daniel in verse 6, and he brings in all these other losers, okay? These demoniacs, wise men, these uh, magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, diviners. He does not want to hear from Daniel. And I think, I, I think well, he is saved and he knows what Daniel's going to say or he suspects what Daniel might say. And he's hoping to get an answer here, and they're not giving him any answers, so finally Daniel comes in. And uh, in verse 8, Daniel arrives, and he gets he relates the dream, and uh, he describes the dream here in verses 10 through 12, and, and then he also describes the angelic message, because with the dream came a message. It didn't happen with the statue. With the statue, it was just a statue. There was no message. But with this dream, there's a message. God is speaking directly to Nebuchadnezzar. So verse 13 then, I was looking in the visions of my mind as I lay in my bed, and behold, an angelic watcher, a holy one, descended from heaven. He shouted, shouted out and spoke as follows, chop down the tree and cut off its branches. And so there's a message that happens here. And he doesn't like it. It's terrifying to him. And uh, he's going to be—he's going to lose his mind. He's going to be given an animal mind for seven years, or seven months, or seven weeks, some, seven somethings, seven periods of time. And then verse seventeen. This is how it ends. This sentence is by the decree of the angelic watchers, and the decision is a command of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom He wishes. This should be our theme verse until Tuesday. Okay? On election day. On election day. Do we get what we ask for? Do we get what we vote for? Or do we get what God gives us? Because God is sovereign. The Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whom He wishes and sets over it the lowliest of men, the basest of men. There are occasions when we get the most vile, vulgar, immoral, godless. And then there's occasions when we don't. Okay? <laughs> oh, this is fun. I can't wait for this whole season to be done with. Whichever way, 
Well, okay. Maybe I can wait. Um, all right. And so this is his dream. And Nebuchadnezzar says, or Daniel says, that's horrible. Says, uh, if only this did not apply to you, because this does apply to you, and that's not good. If only. If only. So Daniel's appalled now in verse 19. Daniel's appalled for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. Okay. And uh, the king says, don't lie to me now. Tell me. So my Lord, if only the dream applied to those who hate you and its interpretation to your adversaries. But sadly, it applies to you. It is you, O king. Verse 22, it is you, O king. It is you, O king, right? And I think about Nathan rebuking uh, David, right? You're the man. And here's Daniel saying, you're the tree, (laughs) okay? You're the tree. This this is all about you, and you're going to get chopped down. Uh, You're the tree, and you have become great and grown strong. Your majesty has become great and reached to the sky, your dominion to the end of the earth. And that you saw an angelic watcher, a holy one, descending from heaven, saying, chop down the tree. This is all about you. You're in trouble. Okay? And so he's got a recommendation here. He says, if you don't want to lose your mind for seven years or months or days or whatever, I think, I think it's, I go back and forth. It's either years or months. It has to be long enough to be significant. Okay? I don't think it was seven minutes. Uh, it was seven periods of time. Okay? And so he encourages him. He says, verse 27, O king, may my advice be pleasing to you. Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a prolonging of your prosperity. In other words, live wisdom, live humbly. And and Daniel gets to become an advisor here to urge a young believer who hasn't been saved very long, who's growing in the Word of God, to encourage him to walk and to live out in public wisdom, the personal wisdom that's available to him through the Scriptures. And so uh, that's, that's the message. And regardless of what president we get, or governor, or mayor, or council member, or whatever, precinct committee chairman, whatever we have, we want them to be surrounded by believers, advisors that can impart to them divine viewpoint, that can remind them about the Scriptures. And all this happens to Nebuchadnezzar the king 12 months later. And so the impact Daniel had delayed things by a while. For 12 months, for 11 months anyway, Nebuchadnezzar returns maybe to a, to a humble mode until this fateful day when he falls. And he, what does he do? He falls into pride. And it is, the judgment then is so severe because he's been warned. He's been warned again. He's been given the doctrine. And then he falls. So 12 months later, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. I don't know what it is with kings walking on the roof. Okay, David's up there and he looks down there and there's Bathsheba taking her bath. Here's Nebuchadnezzar walking around on the, on the roof, glorying in all his greatness. Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power for the glory of my majesty? Yeah, great is me right? Greatly am I to be praised. And while the word was in the king's mouth, he can't even finish his boasting. It's still, he's still in the process of all of his carnal boasting. A voice comes from heaven saying, now, (laughs) King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. You will be driven away from mankind. Your dwelling place will be with the beasts. And, uh, you will be given grass to eat like cattle. Seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that El Elyon, Most High God, is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Even the basest of men, if you look back to verse 17. Okay? And this is what happens. The word that was fulfilled, he was driven away, became began eating grass, his body was drenched with dew, his hair and Claws were nailed, uh, nails were grown out like claws, hair grown like eagle's feathers. All right. He got, I imagine he got past the, the second month. I had to stop at two months. I couldn't get to my third month on my beard. But he, he got to past three months, got past seven months, maybe got to seven years, who knows. 
Anyway, then his reason returns to him and he's going to worship and he's going to confess. That's all God wants is confession from us. And then his reason returned to him in verse 36. I like the way the chapter ended. I've got to close. I'm out of time. But um, in verse 37, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven for all his works are true, his ways are just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. He is very able. He is he is very able. He is qualified and well rehearsed. Okay? He can humble those who walk in pride. Thank you, Father, for this study. Uh, thank you for this day and help us to, to make these connections, Father, that our walk of wisdom, our walk of humility is not just personal, it's also public. It shapes how we operate in the workplace. It shapes our business dealings. It shapes our our uh, political dealings. It shapes our voting. It shapes everything that we do in raising our children and in uh, purchasing our homes and in all that we do, Father. Let the Word of God shape who we are in Christ. I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.